Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Shackles Are Off podcast and, well, last week's episode with Adam Gilchrist went down an absolute storm. What a gent. And if you've not listened to it, do go back and check it out. He was brilliant, Chris Millard. He was great fun. Outstanding. Outstanding fun. Um, if, if I do say so myself, uh, a, a revelation um, for our podcast, it was um, yeah, it was a pleasure to speak to him. To be honest, a little bit jealous of where he was as well. weren't you? <laughs> no, yeah, we didn't really talk about that too much, did we? But he was yeah. was he isolating? I think, and he was sat on his. He was isolating with his bloody bifold doors on his Perth beachfront apartment when it was about one degree outside in my sunny Sheffield home, and, and you were in the London studio, weren't you? So yeah. it was a little bit. Even though it was in isolation, we were still a bit jealous, weren't we? Yeah, we were. But it was a brilliant man and great to get an hour with him. Well, this week, I mean, I'm not going to say we've topped Gilly, but in fact, actually, yeah, we have. We have topped Gilly, I think, with this week's guest because there's so much more ground to cover with a man who's been around the game a lot longer than Adam Gilchrist has. And that man comes in the form of Michael Holding. Michael Holding is a man that we know so well here in the UK from his silky tones on the commentary to uh, the generation before me and you, Chris, just watching him absolutely tear England apart in the 70s and 80s with his fast bowling, part of that incredible West Indies team. And then also, just in the last couple of years, with him speaking out so passionately and so brilliantly and calmly and eloquently on the Black Lives Matter movement as well. So there's so much ground to cover with Michael Holding. And he's one of those people, isn't he, who, when he speaks... You just listen, don't you? You just got to let him talk because he speaks a lot of sense about a lot of different topics. He does. He does indeed. There were, there were times during the pod where you and I would, I think there was a little little overdue pause, which I'm, I'm sure our editorial skills will, will edit out. But for the, for the listeners that don't hear that, we were both just there with like, hanging on his every word and oh someone needs to speak now he's waiting for us to talk but um no it was it was incredible um just to hear how passionate he is on so many topics and just talk sense some people in this world just talk sense all of the time and i think he's one of those isn't he 
He is. And, you know, a humble guy as well. He's perfectly happy to admit different bits and bobs. It's good. We talk about the IPL with him. We obviously talk about his his incredible passionate stuff and also his book as well that he's written on BLM. And, and, and you might be thinking... Oh, it's, you know, it's a bit woke for me, this, or I've heard him talk about it before. If you are one of those people, what I would say is, is just listen. Just just listen to the first five minutes of the podcast and just soak in what he's got to say. Um, he holds court brilliantly and he speaks very, to everybody, I'd say, is a probably fair way of, of, of discussing it. But also great on the current game of cricket as well. Really, really passionate about the administrators and the way it's going. And I know a lot of you guys listening are massive Test cricket fans as well. And uh, you'll probably agree with a lot of the things that he says. But he's also honest enough, Chris, to admit, I mean, we'll spoil a little bit for you, that if he was around now, he'd probably find it difficult to turn the IPL down, which I thought was quite, quite honest of him, really. Yeah, quite, quite honest of him, and and also quite sensible. Again, <laughs> so he talks a lot of sense, and who, 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 who in the right mind, given that opportunity, would turn it down, no matter how much they dislike the way cricket's going? They wouldn't, would they? And I think he, again, not trying to spoil it for everyone because it's an unbelievable podcast, but um, his views on how cricket's run it really does summarise. I think what I know a lot of my friends think, and a lot of people in the Barmy Army think that where the game's um, really failing and, it, and it's not the players, it's not the coaches, it's not the the people in the, the middle managerial positions, it's the ad- administrators right at the top that um, are, are causing the problems for the cricket lovers. And and let's see if there's some reform in years to come. But Mikey Holding sums it up better than me or you could even do the justice to. So we'll leave it to him, shall we? Absolutely, yeah. We'll leave that to him. Also, <laughs> just listen to a cracking message that he sends at the end to all the Barbie army who are travelling out to the Caribbean. He's got some incredible advice. It's really, really good and well worth doing. Now, you are heading to the Caribbean very shortly, Chris. As we record this, it's only about a week away when the England players fly and it's probably a couple of weeks until the vast majority of the Barbie army folk fly. So um, how are you looking forward to it? And just give us a reminder of where you're going and, and what you're looking forward to. Because Grenada, we spoke about it on the last podcast, but that's one of the destinations. It is indeed, and it's a beautiful destination as well. We we have um, we have so many things going on while we're out there in, in Grenada as an island. I, I don't know if people have been before listening to this. If you have or haven't been, it doesn't matter. But it's just an incredible island. Such a small island with very few people on and when an English test match comes to town and 10,000 people go to the island, five, 10,000, whatever it's going to be, it really does shake it up and it will be such an exciting, such a fun week. Uh, Grenada really does have it all. It's got everything from your, your white sand beaches and your crystal blue sea. So I sound like I work for the tourism board. Here. I don't, <laughs> just, just to let you know. I just love the place. It's brilliant. And the food, the drink, yeah, we I'll let Mikey Holden tell you about the rum and cokes, but the food as well. I, I'm a bit of a foodie and you just can't get better than Caribbean freshly cooked fish and jerk chicken. It's just unbelievable. And Grenada is is one of the best islands in the Caribbean, in my opinion. Yeah, and I'm so jealous of the people touring. It's going to be such a, such a brilliant tour. And uh, obviously there's a bit of an element of, you know, the bowling selections and stuff, which again, we touch on with Mikey. So uh, there we have it. Um, I think the website to go and visit, which I was drooling over and salivating at the other day, was puregrenada.com. So do go and have a look at that. You know, if you're kind of umming and ahhing whether to add that leg to your tour or whatever, do go and have a little gander at that. Uh, Remember to share 
subscribe, tell your pals about it, and uh, just get involved with the podcast as well because we've got some you know some great guests coming up over the next few months, and you know this guy is one of them. Obviously, uh, Mikey Holding on the Shackles Are Off podcast is coming up. Happy birthday, belated birthday for yesterday. Um, Thank you, Jim. It's not something I celebrate, though, so I don't worry about that. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. The wishes are meant in their best way anyway. I just uh, we, This is something that we start our podcast with, with every guest we've had on, whether it's Adam Gilchrist last week, to Joe Root, to Alan Donald. We always ask them, how did cricket begin for you? You know, was it back garden? Was it playing on the beach? Was it just at school? How, how was cricket starting for Mikey Holding? Cricket started for me in what was known as a gully course behind where I lived on Don Robin Avenue in Jamaica. It was just an empty bit of land. Empty when it didn't rain, that is. Because when it rained, it was, as I said, a gully course and it was flooded with water. And that's where the kids in the area played. We played football there, played cricket there, whatever we did. That was our play area. And of course, that is where I started. That is where I played my first ever game with an umpire. Because we had a community team that played in a competition called the Ranking Cup. And the guys came up to the, the backyard and shouted to my mother and asked her if she would allow me to play with them that weekend. And that's how I played my first game. So good. Were you a fast bowler then or were you a bit of everything? Because quite often the guests we speak to, the ones who make it as a professional are the ones who do everything. They can do everything well. No, I wouldn't say I could do everything well. I loved bowling and fielding. I wasn't all that good at batting, you know, but and when I started off as a kid, I obviously couldn't bowl fast. I used to bowl some off breaks and then as time went on, I tried to bowl a little bit quicker. And because of an informal game that we played in Jamaica, I think most Caribbean islands played, but might have different names to it. We had no umpires, and the only way you could get to bat was to actually hit the stumps. So if the guys were batting, of course, we had no pads and gloves and that sort of a thing. And lots of times we didn't even have a proper bat that came from a store. A lot of the bats were cut out of wood. But what we would do is just go down to the open area, play cricket informally. And if you hit a guy on his leg with the ball, you couldn't get him out because there's no umpire to say LBW. So you have to actually hit the stumps or catch the ball, take a catch yourself. So what I started to do after a while was decide that if these guys are going to keep their legs in front of the stumps or in front of the wicket, because we had no stumps, it was a corrugated zinc that we had as the, as the wicket. <laughs> if these guys are going to keep their legs in front of it, I would want to hit them on the legs so as it hurts. So the next time I got a ball, they wouldn't put their legs in front of the, the stumps. <laughs> so, and that's how I started to develop to bowl a little bit quicker. Okay. What age What age was that then, Mikey? About early on the figures. 10, 11, 12, that sort of thing. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. And um, I mean, then it's obviously developed from there into, you know, did you have any ambitions of, of being a professional cricketer? Because presumably... No, not at all. Yeah. You just start off playing for the love of it. Yeah. I played, I played all the sports. When I was at school, I played football. I played cricket. I did athletics. I played basketball. I, I, did, I played table tennis. I did everything that was going. And of course, during the summer holidays, 
again, you meet up with the guys in the, in the community, in the area, and you play all sorts of things. You play whatever sport. You know, eventually the gully course got paved. It was then a concrete area of it. Not all of it was paved. But they fashioned a part of it with concrete as so that the water, when it rained, would actually go down that area. So as we would still have areas in which we could play when it rained. And we'll go down there and ride skates in, in the gully on the concrete. So whatever was happening as kids, we did it. That's so good. That's is, is there still people going down there to this day playing playing cricket? Yes, but not as much because they now have a school. And the school uses that playing area now as their official playing area. And again, they had to fence off a part of the, the approach to the school, which then made the playing field even smaller. So it's not what it used to be. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of people don't choose a sport unless they're really good at one. But now the way it's going with the professionalism of it, people are quite often just playing one sport from being 10, 11, 12. And actually, it's quite important to play all the different team sports, isn't it? I mean, it's a shame that that's dying out. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the situation with sports now is that there are no seasons. When I was a young man growing up, the sports had seasons. You played cricket at a particular time. You played football at a particular time. Athletics was a particular time. These days, everything takes place 12 months of the year. So it is difficult then for any youngster to say, oh, I want to play them all. Where I am now in Cayman, they are trying to structure their sports to have specific periods of time in which the kids play that particular sport. And I think that is the way you have got to go. Yeah. Because... I think it is unfortunate and unkind to youngsters to tell them that they have to specialize at such an early age. Mm. They should be playing all the sports. They should be enjoying all the sports, having freedom to do as they like as kids. Later on in life, you can talk about specialization and targeting one thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, just looking at everything, look, we'll go through fast bowling, the fact that you love cricket, commentator, horse lover as well. Um, yeah, and and an author as well. We'll cover those first few bits towards the latter part of the podcast, if you don't mind. But this book, Why We Kneel, How We Rise, I, I don't really know where to start with talking to you about it. But this book came out last year, and it's had well an incredible impact, hasn't it? And you yeah. have won awards, and um, lots of people have presumably been in touch about it and wanting to talk to you, like we are, about the book and amongst other things. And I imagine that you took a lot of calls in the immediate aftermath um, from your Sky piece that you did with Ebony Rainford Brent, which was just ridiculously powerful. We actually shared it on our social media channels the other day. And once again, it went absolutely crazy, which was which was great to see and such incredible reaction to it. But am I right in thinking it was actually a phone call from Thierry Henry, the former Arsenal and France footballer, that maybe spark the idea of doing a bit more on the Black Lives Matter movement? Yes, well, Thierry Henry was one of the first persons I actually spoke to in voice. I got a lot of messages. And of course, I responded to a lot of people in emails and messages. But Thierry Henry was actually the first person I spoke to on the telephone, voice, voice, voice messaging, not this texting thing. <laughs> and we spoke for quite some time because he got in touch with Sky. As you know, he was a Sky football pundit. He has his connections at Sky. He got in touch with Sky and asked him for my number. 
And then, of course, I got the call from him. I was elated to get the call from him because I'm a big fan. I've been, always been a big fan. We're just watching him play, play football. And we had a good long chat. And this is while I was still at Southampton at the ground because by the time I got back to the dressing room, not the dressing room, the commentary box, that's when the call came in. And we had a good long chat and he said, we have to get together and talk some more because he was telling me about his experiences and he was telling me, that, oh, he felt my pain because he knows what it's all about. But of course, Jens, you know, it was COVID. We had absolutely no, no opportunity of getting together because he was saying we have to meet up in London, that sort of thing. We had absolutely no chance of that happening. And then I started getting messages and calls from other people. Naomi Osaka, for instance, sent a message saying, oh, I can identify with the gentleman, what he has spoken about in regards to his parents. I would love to talk to him. So again, you know, that was another source that kept on giving me encouragement in that direction. And Ed Hawkins, who was the ghostwriter of the book, he was adamant from the beginning. Mike, we have to carry this on. We have to do our book. I told him no initially. I said, absolutely no chance. And then Ian Ward, again, another person, one of the first guys when I got back to the commentary box said to me, so what next? But I kept on putting them up. I said, if people don't understand what I'm saying from what I just said and what I mean, there's nothing else I can do. There's nothing else I can say. But all the messages kept on coming, all the different emails, the text messages, phone calls. And I decided, you know what? I can't stop at this. This requires a bit more. Let us go and delve into this a bit deeper. And that is when I started to do the research behind the book. And of course, Ed Hawkins himself did a lot of research and we collaborated on this book and produced what, it, what we have now. And to be honest, I didn't intend to do it, but I'm glad that I eventually did it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for younger people, certainly of, of our generation, and, and our background as well, that's important to say, you know, it's it's a great book. And it just it highlights so much, right? There's so many different things. There was the 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 Florida story, the house selling story in there. You know, 2019. I mean, you just think, oh my word, are we actually seriously still living in a world where this happens? You know, that's like like yesterday, basically, isn't it? In in terms of like history. Yeah, definitely. When when you speak to young people now who've read the book, do you get an impression? Or, or not even read the book, just seen your piece that you did on Sky, you and Ebony talking passionately from the heart about your experiences. Do you get the impression that people are a bit more understanding, are aware of the subconscious race, racist language that's used every day, the lack of opportunity? Do, do you get a feeling that people are responding to it? Yes, and James, not just young people. You know. I've spoken to a lot of people, not quite my age, I'm a old fossil now, but people <laughs> and that sort of age group that understand as well. You see, a lot of us have gone through life, have gone, have lived our life not even thinking about anything because, you know, we just go through our lives. We are comfortable with what we are doing. We live our lives. We are taught certain things from our youngsters. We grow up expecting certain norms, as in people would call it, and having certain ideas in our heads and not think about, oh, could this be different from what we are thinking? Is it different to other people than to us, whoever we are? And then when you start to realize that the world, <coughs> sorry, the world in which we live is not just the blinkered thing that you are seeing. It's much wider than that. People are grasping it, a lot of people. When I was in England this summer, 
I, many places I went, people would shout to me across the street, Mikey, I heard you on Sky. I like what you're saying. I, I, I agree with you. That sort of thing I was getting on a regular basis. And I will tell you, James, if that had happened in the 70s, possibly 80s, and again, possibly even in the 90s, it would have had a different reaction. My first trip to England in the 70s, I went into a business place, sat down on a stool, and a gentleman came in and told me it was his stool. I should get up and go back to where I came from. So I know things have progressed since then, and hopefully things will keep on getting better because people are becoming aware, not just living in their blinkered world, and becoming aware. And if more and more people read this book, and again, whenever I say this, I'm not trying to sell this book or to push sales of this book because a lot of them are in libraries in the UK. I want people to read them for free. I need people to learn because we have been taught and grew up expecting and thinking certain things that were wrong. We have been brainwashed. And when I say we, I mean everybody, whether you're white, brown, black, whatever, we have all been brainwashed to a degree about certain things, taught a lot of lies and taught a lot of half-truths. Yeah. And do you know what? You just mentioned the seventies as well there. So that was your first tour. Is it 76, your first tour? 76, yes. So, so 76, and that was incredibly important because around that time, you'd got a lot of immig- immigrants who'd come over from the Caribbean, ca- immigrants from Africa, basically lots of black immigrants living in London, living around the UK, and you've got this incredible team from the West Indies and incredibly well supported at the test grounds. And you'll have changed so many people's perspectives and outlooks, not on the world or not on the game of cricket, but on themselves, because they'll have thought, these are guys that look like me, but yet they are brilliant at what they do. And they're out there performing and getting this kind of support. And that must have been amazing. At the time, were you aware of how significant that was to the black community living in the UK? Because it was giving them something to strive towards, right? Whether it was cricket or anything else. Yeah. Initially, not. I didn't realise the impact. I, I knew it meant a lot to the guys because the guys turned up at the cricket and you could see the joy on their faces whenever we won and that sort of a thing. But it was my first time to England, James. I didn't know the society in which they were living. I didn't know what they were going through living in England. So it didn't have a great impact on me. Later on in life, as I visited England more and more and got to really meet these folks in the the UK and go to their homes and go to different ventures and different things with them, I then got to understand exactly how impactful our efforts and our performances were on their lives and on their thinking, not necessarily their lives, because a lot of things didn't really change in this society and at their workplaces, but in their own minds and how they thought about themselves. It mattered a great deal. But, you know, 76, we're winning. These guys are West Indian. They're happy with us winning. I didn't really recognise exactly how impactful it was. You were in your early 20s when Tony Gregg made his comments about the grovelling, right? And you've spoken so much about that before, so I'm not going to ask you to talk generally about that because it was you know that incident you have spoken about that everywhere else but was was that one of the first times that you realized there was a problem with the subconscious racist language as opposed to the out and out pure racism that you saw day in day out in the street because that was that was a language issue wasn't it is that what that's what you've said previously i believe 
Yes, yeah, it was. It was, again, just the impression that people get when they see certain things and hear certain things. Me, Black West Indian, and basically the entire team, Black West Indians, hearing a man with a South African background making a comment like that and using that particular word gravel, which is derogatory. Doesn't matter how you look at it, it's derogatory. Even if, you, even if it wasn't a man with a South African background, but the fact that he had a South African background and apartheid was still going on in South Africa, that just was the wrong term to use and the wrong way to go about saying what he wanted to say. As I've said, and as you have noted, James, I've spoken about it a lot and I got to know Tony Gregg very well after that and I realized it was just a wrong term that he used. He didn't have it in his mind that, oh, these black people are inferior. I didn't get that when I got to meet Tony Gregg and spend all those years and, and the amount of time I spent with him. But at that time, wrong term, it just was, well, it helped us for us. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that. When, when you look back now and you, you look to where we are today and you look at every, everything that's happened, all the fantastic work that, that you, you've done and, and has been done further afield, are you hopeful that the future is a lot brighter, that there is going to be less um, unconscious poor language, derogatory language used in, in the game of sport, but globally as well. Do, do you have positive hope for the future? I do, Chris, but again, I don't expect to see the end result. I don't expect to live that long because anything that has been going on for so long, this thing has been going on for centuries. It's not going to just disappear in a decade or two. Yeah. I can see changes. I can see people's attitude changing. I, I can see different things that are happening in society that is heading in the right direction. But at the same time, there are a lot of things that when you see them happen, you think to yourself, are we really making progress? See, I talk to a lot of guys. I talk to some guys in England that I, I know very well. Some black guys, some West, guys are West Indian background. And they keep on saying to me, boy, Mike, look at this. Nothing is changing. And I have to say to them, Listen, we are making two steps forward and one backward. You know, we, we have to recognize that we have made progress. It will take time. And sometimes I have to be sending him things and I said, and I'll say to them, listen, 15 years ago, this would not have happened. This would not the repercussions of this person doing this. People would have just swept it on a carpet. Nothing would have happened. No, even in the US, where I think it is far worse than in the UK because of the gun culture and all that with police killing so many black young black men. Yeah. They are now paying the price. First time ever in Minnesota a policeman was convicted of murder of a black man. First time ever in the history of the United States of America. Incredible. Years ago, it would have just been brushed under the carpet. The killing of Ahmad Arbery, three men found guilty of murder. Mm. Years ago, that would have been brushed under the carpet and we have moved, we'd have moved on. So yes, Bad things are still happening, but people more times than not are now paying the price of doing bad things. So that is progress. Yeah. And there's an awareness on people understanding as well that actually they can't do that. Or if they are being racist, they understand that actually that is not embarrassed about it as well. You know, that's the key thing, isn't it? People need to be embarrassed 
about it. Exactly. And we need to make sure that they're embarrassed, James, and Chris. Whenever we are in the company of people, I'm not talking about no people you don't know, because you might inflame something that you don't, you don't want to do that. But if you're in the company of people that you know, people that you associate with, and they say or do certain things, we have to pull them up. Mm. We have to say, yeah. no, 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 that is unacceptable. Think about what you're saying. Think about what you are doing. Yeah. If we just turn our backs and close our eyes or our ears and, and just move on, it won't change. We have got to be proactive. We have got to make sure that we call people out. And again, let me in, <laughs> reiterate what I'm saying. Not people you don't know. <laughs> you don't want to go in starting fights and starting arguments with people you don't know. But people that you are your associate, people that you know, because we all make mistakes. I grew up as a young black man having certain thoughts in my head. And with all my traveling and all my friends that I have made all over the world, you learn. Yeah, that's the only way. People around us are learning as well. That's the only way, isn't it? That's the only way. I, look, I thoroughly recommend that you, if you if you haven't already, "Why We Kneel, How We Rise" uh, by Mikey Holden. It's, it's yeah. I mean, it, it talks about all this stuff at length. Another thing that I want to just pick up on whilst we're on this topic, Mikey, is the visibility in the media. So it's a it's an industry that I work in, and Chris is very aware of you know the the cricket in media and the sport in media as well. And what we've started to see is more representation in commentary boxes, in TV studios as well, which is probably equally, if not more important, you'd say, than the actual playing arena. Because the playing arena hasn't been an issue, has it? It's been very ability-driven. If you are a good black cricketer, mm-hmm. footballer, rugby player, generally... Generally, I'm not saying all the time, but generally you've had some kind of a way in because of your ability, because you're going to help a team or a franchise perform. But the media companies now employing people of colour and, you know, that is that's brilliant. So yourself done it for a long time, but Ebony Rainford Brent and even looking at Isha Gua as well. In just that's just in cricket and their front line every day, week in, week out in the test summer. That's important too, isn't it? And that must be, you must have taken a lot of pride in, in seeing the diversification of cricket media boxes. And not just cricket media boxes, but the media in general. Yeah. When you look at the Sky, tele, Sky TV and you look at people who are presenting on not just sport, but even news and that sort of thing, it's very important because people at home have got to be able to say to themselves, if that person can do it, so can I. There are examples there. There are people out there that I can look up to and I can try and copy or emulate. And that is very important because there's an important saying that I don't 100% believe in it, guys, that what you can't see, you can't be. But it is easier to be something if you can see it in other in people like yourself. Yeah, that's 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 been great from, from what we've what we've seen and hope that that does continue. Right, we're just going to break away from the podcast with Mikey Holden. Well, you know, just to keep you all on hooks for a little bit longer, why not? If you want to work on your swing in comfort or watch in the stands in something sharp, Charles Tirrett, that's T-Y-R-W-H-I-T-T. Yeah, it's spelt funny, but it's a cool clothing brand. So, you know, go and check it out. Charles Tirrett has a very great collection of smart, casual menswear, perfect for cricketers, professional and novice alike. 
all now with an extra 20% off with the code BARMY20. If it's good enough for Joss Butler, well, it's most certainly good enough for us. Anyway, there you go. Go and check that out whilst you listen to the next part of Mikey Holding on the Shackles Are Off podcast. From your media work, I get the impression that you do really enjoy watching cricket and you enjoy being at the test match and you enjoy being there and, and, and loving it, right? And and is that is that still true? Because I, I do get that affection, you know, that, that affection so much, for the game. To be honest, not so much. I, I I do not like the direction in which cricket is going. And people will say, oh, you're an old fogey. Change has to come. Fine. I don't mind if change is coming. But the people who run the game, they pretend, they give a lot of, of arguments about, oh, test cricket is the highest form of the game, we have to protect test cricket, and but they do nothing to protect it. So if you want to go down that particular road, go down the road. Don't try and pull wool over my eyes and tell me, no, you're not t- taking that right turn. You're going, you're going left. Go right if you want to go right and say you're going right. Don't tell me that you're not going right. And that's why I'm not enjoying the game as much as I used to, because I don't like dishonesty. I don't like people pretending to be something or pretending to do something when they are not. So I'm happy to away from things like that. I, I miss, I haven't been back to England yet, yet, and I wouldn't have been back before May, but already I'm missing not being in England this summer. Because believe me, I've made a lot of great friends in England, in cricket and, and outside of cricket. And I'm going to miss the people that I work with at Sky. And again, not just in the commentary box. I know all the cameramen. I know the guys in the control room. I know the BT guys. Not just guys. I shouldn't just be saying guys. Guys and girls. And I'll miss that. Similar situation with South Africa. I miss not being in South Africa this winter and with guys that I was working with and the girls I was working with. But believe me, the game itself, nah. I am disappointed with what the administrators are doing with the game. I, I think there's only one way to save English Test cricket, and that's for Mikey Holding to be the interim CEO for for a year or two. Do, do you fancy sorting out Test cricket in our country, Mikey? Chris, I don't think people would enjoy me being the CEO because <laughs> you know I would I would just turn things around totally. I would make so many changes; it would look so much so different. It needs and to, again, right? all the people are going to tell you about it. Oh, if you do that, you're not going to get the amount of money that you should be getting. If you're trying to save something, you do what is necessary to save it. But obviously, these people are not trying to save it. So let them do what they want to do. Yeah, there's a lot of um, lot of pockets being lined with cash, isn't there? And Yes, and- yes. And some bonuses coming for, for, for rubbish. Mm. Yeah, it is. We, we'll try and keep... Uh, I thought it reminds me sometimes, forget the digression here, but it reminds me sometimes of the 2008 financial crash and who got hurt and who didn't get hurt and who went home with lots of money when they should not. That it's chaos, but I suppose that's the world in which we live. It is, it is, and um, yeah, we'll <laughs> I agree. I think we, we all know what we're all alluding to as well here when we say that, don't we? <laughs> to an extent, how, how do you? How do you think, if you're talking about the game, the actual, you know, the playing of it, right? 
away from all the administrators and all the stuff that actually we don't get into cricket to watch or talk about or read about because we don't get in that into the game. We start, you know, you started on the recreation ground where you are. Mm. Chris started in, you know, in the park and playing local club cricket and I was the same and it's the same thing, right? That's why we all get into it. In terms of watching it, like actual watching a, a brilliant session, for example, in a test match, do you get that same buzz from from watching it as what you previously did, or does the administrative stuff just completely cloud it? The administrative stuff is clouding it a lot, but if I can forget about that and I can see two good teams playing test cricket, I get a huge buzz from that. Most of the summers I'm in England, the Westerners are not involved. So I'm not emotionally involved with a team that's playing. But I still get a buzz. And sometimes I get sweaty palms from watching the cricket that I'm watching and seeing what, what's going on in the game. You know, test cricket, as far as I'm concerned, gives me that buzz better than any other, any other form of cricket. There are other sports that give me that sort of buzz as well. But test cricket and two good teams playing test cricket, uh, it's, I, I get goosebumps. <laughs> it's, it's nice to hear that. It's nice to hear you still get there. And it'd be wrong for, for you to come on the podcast if we weren't to raise the current England bowling situation within the test ranks with, with Jimmy and Brody recently being left out of the tour to the West Indies. Is, is that a, a good view, in your opinion, looking to the future? Or, or do you think they're absolutely ludicrous in, in the decision-making, Mikey? I wouldn't say it's ludicrous. You know, they have to start looking forward. They have to start looking at young men and see if they can blood some young, young cricketers under much harsher conditions than they're accustomed to at home. If I was an English bowler, I would want to play all my cricket at home. I wouldn't want to be going away to play play any cricket because <laughs> the things are so friendly, so bowler friendly in England. Yeah. I'll be happy to just stay, stay home and play cricket there. What they have to do is to see if these younger guys that are coming behind Broad and Anderson can learn enough away from home to be good bowlers. Because, again, I repeat, I don't think there's a problem. If you are a fast bowler and can't take wickets in England, you need to find another profession. <laughs> when you leave England, you learn a lot more about bowling and about fast bowling because the conditions are a lot harsher. You have to actually do something with the ball instead of just letting the ball go and hoping that it will swing around or seem around. And when you have to be actually doing something with the ball, you learn a lot more. So I have no problem with the selectors saying, listen, we are going to the Caribbean. We need some young fast bowlers to go here and to learn because going to the Caribbean now is not like going to the Caribbean in the late 70s, 80s, or even early 90s. You can afford to send people out here to learn and still think that you have an outstanding chance of winning the series. And I think that's what the selectors are doing, looking to see if they can find youngsters to replace Broad and Anderson. These guys can't go on forever. Mm. And I mean, they are obviously cross about it, but you wouldn't expect it to be any yeah. any other anything else, would you? That's exactly. If gents, if it was a tour in England and they left them out, I would say they are crazy. Yeah, because the youngsters coming in, they may do just as well as Anderson and Broad when you bring them in in England. But what are they learning when they are playing in England? You learn more away from playing in England, and I think that is what in, I don't know. But just, just thinking in cricket in terms. I think that's what the selectors are trying to do. Yeah. And do you look at 
someone like, and it's a shame we've not seen him for a few months because he's been injured, but Joffre Archer, Mark Wood was brilliant as well. You know, we're talking fast, fast bowling now. Yeah. But they were absolutely exceptional, you know, in, in, in series where they've where they've done well, right? They've been like a cut above. How much mm. have you enjoyed watching watching them play? I mean, Joffre Archer's got all the skills when he's fit, hasn't he? Yeah, but I said it initially when Joffre Archer started playing that they were going to destroy him. And basically, that's what England have done. Mm. You don't have someone capable of bowling at that pace and have them bowling 40 yard overs in, a, in, in, in an innings. You don't even have them bowling 40 yard overs in a test match. And you don't have them going out there in every form of the game and playing every game. It is impossible to maintain that sort of thing. It's a human body, it's not a machine. But Archer himself is partly to blame because when I made the comment publicly, he himself publicly said he's fine. He doesn't need any protection. So he partly is to blame. But what they have done with Mark Wood is what they should have been doing with Archer. You have somebody capable of bowling at that pace, not necessarily wrap them up in cotton wool, but take care of them, look after them. You cannot have them just running up and down all day, all night, bowling fast. It doesn't work. It's a human body, not a machine. Yeah. We've, um, just, um, just looking elsewhere, right? Horses, passion of yours. Um, yes. Where where did that come from, Mikey? Because I, I just I, it fascinates me because I've heard I've heard on the grapevine, if you're at your yard, you're at your happiest. By the way. Yeah. Well, I tell you something that again started from I was a kid. I had an older brother that his godmother owned the horses, and he used to go down the Caymanas Park with his godmother to the stables early in the morning. And of course, if you have an older brother, you guys know you want to be where your older brother is. So I'll try and get up early in the morning myself and, and go down with them. So this is where I started off meeting racehorses, getting love racehorses. And then of course, when I went to high school at age 10, 11 again, I met some guys at high school that were big racing fans. You know, we had two trainers in Jamaica at that time that were competing for the championship every year. One was a gentleman by the name of Laurie Silvera, and the other one was Alan Billy Williams. And of course, the two of them supported the two different trainers. And one of them just turned to me automatically and said, Mikey, which, which of the two do you like? At that time, I wasn't too first, but I had to choose one. And of course, <laughs> then I started to get more and more involved at that stage. And then later on in life, it just grew. And then getting to meet Michael Stout, nothing better. Spending every summer with Michael Stout in his stables. Once I'm not at cricket, I was in the yard meeting the girls and the guys, the jockeys. Heaven, believe me, nothing better. Fabulous. <laughs> you know, um, we talk passion, right? So that's obviously a passion of yours, right? And we've you've talked passionately about other things earlier on in this podcast, for goodness sake, you know, far more important issues than horses or commentating or whether it be business or, or, mm. or playing golf or playing with your kids in the park, right? We all know what passion is. The Barmy Army, Barmy Army are passionate. And I know I've, I've seen, I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, what do you think? I, what do you I think of the Barmy? Barmy Army? The last Ashes tour I did was, in, in in Australia, that is, I think it was 2011. Yeah, and I think if you look at the, rec, the the results of that series, it wasn't very good for England. 
But I can remember the Barmy Army turning up every day, top of the voice and supporting the England team and throwing everything behind that England team. You have got to be extremely passionate to be doing that. When your team is doing badly and you're getting, and you pretty much know that you're not going to do well, to still keep on turning up and wearing that England shirt and supporting the team as strongly as that, that is passion. It is. It is. Certainly is. We, we'd um we'd love you to if we're ever if our paths ever cross again. I know you retired from the commentary box, but if you ever want to sample a bit of the passion in the middle of the Barmy Army section, you're always welcome, Mike. You're a true legend to all the Barmy Army followers. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> if I if I get to one of those games, I'll give you a shout. Good man. <laughs> oh dear. Before we wrap up, I must just um, ask you how would a 22, 23, 24-year-old Mike Holding have fed in today's game. What would, what, <laughs> I mean, you'd have, we, we've just had the IPL auction the week of recording this. And I know that that's kind of what we were talking about in terms of money and whatever. But hey, Mike Holding in that would have gone for a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, James, I've said this on so many occasions. I don't blame the cricketers for going to the IPL or going to any other 2020 tournament anywhere. We have to recognize that cricket, especially, is a short career. And especially if you're a fast bowler, even shorter still. Batsmen can go on a lot longer. And in that short career, these cricketers have got to maximize their earnings. A lot of them, the majority of them, did not go to university and then start playing cricket or play cricket along with going to university, like some guys like Atherton and those, NASA and those guys. So a lot of them have nothing to fall back on at the end of their career. So they have got to maximize their earnings. Even guys who went to university and still play cricket, they have spent so much time in cricket that at the end of their cricketing careers, it's difficult for them to you know, pick up life again outside of cricket. So if I was 22, 23 year old young man today and IPL was around, there's no way somebody's gonna to come to me and offer me a million dollars for six weeks or eight weeks and I'm gonna say, no, I don't blame the cricketers. But I go back to the administrators. I go back to who are the parents. The administrators are the parents of the game. They are the ones entrusted for the development and the care of the game. It's like you as parents walking down the street with your kid passing a, a sweetest sweet shop. And the kid wants to go into the sweet shop and eat every sweet that's in the shop. You as a parent say no. You know better. The kid doesn't know better. You know better. You control your kid and say, okay, you can have this one today, but because you know sweets are not good in huge quantities for kids. You know better. Administrators should know better. They are the ones responsible for the game. No cricketer has ever started a 2020 tournament. It's the administrators all over the world. They see one and they say, oh, here comes the money. Yeah. And they follow suit. So I blame no cricketer. The administrators need to do a better job. There well said. They have it. They have it. Well, for us, it's all about test cricket. So, uh, yeah, like we said, if, you, if, if you're ever at a test ground this summer, next summer, <laughs> whenever it is, do feel free to join us. Um, but, yeah, Mikey, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for, for giving us your time. Um, My pleasure. Oh, all right, yeah, it's, it's our pleasure. I hope you guys enjoy the tour in the Caribbean. 
We can't wait. We can't. It's been too long without a tour. It's been so long waiting for a tour with uh, with no restrictions to come and going to three great islands. It's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, it should be good. Any tips? Any tips for any of the travellers who are going to enjoy the West Indies? Maybe for the Other first time. Other than sun cream, of course. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make sure we, you you bring a hat on under some sunscreen. Otherwise, going to and they have to be careful. Tell them all they have got to be careful with their Roman coats because <laughs> when you have that sweet thing that you are drinking and you're in the heat. You're drinking it because you're thirsty and you're not even thinking about the alcohol content. And then when you absorb all that rum, then you realize, oh, hell, what have I done? <laughs> and with all that rum as well, you don't even feel the sun. So you might get burned worse than if you... <laughs> so it's something that I've got to think about seriously. Oh. I've seen it on so many occasions. People get carried away. Oh, this rum and coke is so nice, so sweet. <laughs> or the rum punch because of all the fruits mixed in it. No, be careful. You're still drinking alcohol. <laughs> never learn. We never learn. Mad dog's an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mikey. You know what? There'll be people who are listening to this podcast on the plane on the way over and they'll be going, thanks. Thank you very much, Michael. <laughs> oh, dear. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, and, uh, yeah, we hope to catch up again soon. Yeah, man. My pleasure. And, again, enjoy the tour. <laughs> Cheers, Mikey. Thanks so much. Podcast Network.